We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. part about what I do is every day I walk in and I say, I have to show my value. What am I going to do? Because it's not the same as yesterday and things are going to change and you just have to say, that's part of it. Things are going to change. Show your value. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us for episode 56 in season three. Today is Monday, December 26th, and we want to wish our listeners a happy Hanukkah for those who celebrate the Festival of Lights. We hope you enjoyed a wonderful celebration with family and friends. Yesterday was Christmas Day, and we wish those who celebrate Christmas a very Merry Christmas. And finally, today is Boxing Day for our listeners in other parts of the globe, and we wish you a joyous day with your family as well. Today, we speak with Dr. Matt Dane Baker. Dr. Baker is the interim provost for Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is a longstanding national leader and wonderfully humble human who has contributed much in his career to our profession, our country, and to the world. Dr. Baker talks with us about his career as a PA, his military career, and his leadership experiences in higher education. As always, you can learn more about our guests by going to our website at www.papathpodcast.com. Next week will be our season-ending reflection episode before Steph and I take a winter break to line up our guests for season four. Happy holidays. Matt, thanks again for joining us. Could you tell us first about how you decided to become a PA so many years ago? Yeah, no, I wish I could say that this was like a super planned thing that um, that in the middle of the uh, 1970s, I realized that, hey, this this is it that came from a, a lightning bolt or a calling. But um, so I went to um, college initially and took a eclectic group of things that I liked. It was a university, it was a college then, now a university where you could sort of pick a lot of your own courses. So I wound up taking uh, a lot of courses in marine science. I started as a marine science major, marine biology, physical oceanography. I took a lot of courses in science, a lot of courses in criminal justice, and a lot of courses in psychology. And so I graduated, I guess, to my parents' chagrin with the qualifications to arrest fish, but nothing else um, at the time. <laughs> and I applied to a variety of government jobs at the time, um, uh, got into some, but then was put on wait lists. Very a complicated time, and I began working in a, a psychiatric institution with adolescents, many of whom were um, committed there by the court. And then I wound up going to graduate school for counseling psychology. And at a certain point, I decided that maybe I liked this sort of taking care of people, but didn't know what I wanted to do. So I. Um, I applied uh, into the master's degree in counseling psychology. I um, 
applied to BSN programs and, and got in. And I heard about the PA profession through somebody that I worked with at the hospital who was in PA school, and it sounded intriguing. And so at some point, I had to choose which of the three paths I was going to take. And the PA profession sounded so new and exciting that I decided that that was the direction that I was going to take. And I really uh, never looked back after that. It was really exciting. So I had worked in mental health, but I also worked for a local group of the Heart Association doing uh, CPR training and just led me to this direction of the one. I, I mean, I knew a lot of nurses. I knew a lot of people that were either psychologists or counselors and but I didn't know a lot of PAs I only knew two and uh but that was enough it was exciting it was wonderful I interviewed and I loved the concept and and so you ended up going to Hahnemann University as I recall is that correct yeah that's absolutely correct at that time I think there were probably only one or two PA programs in the state of Pennsylvania. There were none in New, New Jersey wow. it was before Rutgers started I guess and it was only one in the Philadelphia area. I think there's close to 10 now. And so, and I wasn't for family reasons. I was not, you know, I was engaged in things and I, I was not, we were, and my wife's job was there. So I was not going to move. So I figured, you know, it was Hahnemann or, or bust. And I applied, I got in and I was uh, fairly exciting, uh, excited to do that. So I stayed in my hometown of Philadelphia, got to travel a lot after that, and did travel for um, my rotations and preceptorships to more rural areas, which was were fun. Okay. But born and raised in Philadelphia and went to PA school there. Oh, that's great. That's great. And so tell us your mental health background that you had uh, just alluded to previously. What was that like going into PA school and having that background? And did that impact you in your choice of clinical careers? It probably didn't influence me much. I did a psychiatry rotation, but didn't ever decide to, to go in there. So what influenced me was a job I had before. So when we were teenagers, my wife and I worked in a nursing home. She was a waitress and I was a dishwasher, very, um, very prestigious job at the time, dishwasher in a small nursing home but loved working with the elderly. So that's when I knew mm -hmm. that I would beg the people at Hahnemann, Nate Alston, the wonderful, may rest in peace, clinical coordinator there for many, many years. Um, he's a guy that if they ever had, they had a, um, uh, a Nobel Prize for clinical coordinating, he would have gotten it or an Olympic medal. And they had one geriatric site and I at uh, the Philadelphia Geriatrics Center, a very large place. The main campus was a thousand employees and five different nursing homes, a hospital for the elderly, a rehab center, outpatient centers. They had a bunch of PAs working there and from Duke and Baylor and other places, it was an eclectic group. And so that's where I did my uh preceptorship and I stayed there when I graduated. I but I knew from the dishwashing experience that I loved working with the elderly. Loved it. That's fantastic. So so how long did you do that work with the elderly at that site? I worked for the geriatric center for over eight years, but it wasn't continuous. So I worked for them. Uh, first, I could not get a clinical job. So I got a job in clinical research trials, NIH trials. 
So I did clinical work because we did, you know, histories, physicals, stress tests. We did a bunch of things on people before we put them in the trial. It's just the nature of the trial. And then when they had the first job opening in the uh, outpatient, I took it. And then a job that included uh, an outpatient office and uh, three half days in the nursing home. And that was like my favorite. And so I was there. And then I got this great opportunity to go into family practice and a good opportunity to go into ENT. And I didn't stay in them. I went back to the geriatric center because at the time, you know, it was a place that gave you a lot of opportunity. They asked me, like, I volunteer for anything. So they said, oh, do you want to write a grant? Sure, I'll write a grant. And um, when they called me back, they said, you worked for this program that was a research, just research only, and we extended it to become a, a senior fitness center that's medically supervised and a cardiac rehab center. And it's a, run by uh, cardiology and pulmonology. And so it's attached to a very sophisticated at the time, uh, nuclear stress testing lab and echo lab and a, a lab that did pulmonary function testing. So uh, they said, do you want to run the center? It includes cardiac rehab and exercise and uh, nutritional counseling and research and and some testing labs. And I jumped at it. And so I, I went back to the geriatric center and spent quite a few years and then was promoted to an assistant VP level at the medical department. Fairly stressful job. But, you know, you ran the medical practices. We had um, a lot of employed physicians and then a lot of that came in from other health systems to do subspecialties. Very, but we also ran credentialing. We ran the um, the quality and safety program committees and uh, pharmaceutics and therapeutics, a P&T committee. So did a lot of the things with the medical department. Um, that wonderful place broke up into many little pieces years later and right before right before I left. Wow. Wow. So, and at the same time, you, as I understand it, also had a career in the military. So do you want to talk a little bit about when you entered the military, when you re-entered the military and the reserves and, and uh, kind of the roles you played in that? Yeah. So I um, had a friend who, you know, said, this is a great job. He introduced me to people. Um, I worked my way through mostly in the reserve forces. I was in the um, Army National Guard for a while. I was a uh, CW2, Chief Warrant Officer 2. I was in the Army Reserve and wound up in the Air National Guard, uh, where I spent a lot of my career in a air refueling wing at a McGuire Air Force Base that was half uh, full-timers and half part-timers. So because we were refueling all the time. And we even had a full-time PA slot there for quite a long time. And we even we had uh, a variety of full-time and part-time slots. It's a great, great, great place, great place to travel. So I spent 21 years in the military. I went from uh uh, warrant officer one to lieutenant colonel. And then eventually, uh, it when I got promoted, my third or fourth promotion at the university, it just, I couldn't um, maintain, you know, at the um, the lifestyle at having um, these two jobs. Because as you, as you know, as you move up in the military, even if you're in the reserve force, they expect you to work 
not it's not one week in a month then then you're going in it's going in yeah. two mornings a week and one evening a week and then you have your three days a weekends and uh you would spend quite a bit of time in different you know and then you were active duty for periods of time so spent quite a bit of time and uh my civilian job as i called it was less forgiving at the time because there was a time when i uh you know worked <laughs> up to five places at a time. You know, I did moonlighting uh, at a hospital, acute, acute care. I did the admissions for both the hospital and the um, uh, uh, a detox center um, attached to each other. Mm-hmm. And then I worked on the mobile mental health team doing physical evaluations of people and giving them medicine. And at the same time, I was doing some part-time teaching in different places and uh, was working in the uh, with the with the reserves. So I did it for 21 years, uh, retired, loved it, and uh, it was a great experience. I got to travel to a lot of places, some places that are super, you know, that people travel for vacations like uh, London and uh, Japan and some places where people don't travel on vacations. And then also I had a chance to get chosen for a lot of interesting things. Um, I had a a person who was a mentor of mine and and probably still is. And she was a nurse who became a a brigadier general. So she had these things that we had to go on that were trips where we would be supporting the military in different countries. And so... um, Mm -hmm. First one was in Albania, and she said, you know, we're um, providing them with them support. I need a team to go with me. And I said, well, sure, I'm up for it. If you want me to carry your um, suitcases, whatever you want me to do, I'm I'm there for it. But it was really exciting. We got to go to to their military hospitals. We got to go to um, areas where there was uh, still a lot of, I would say, old, um, rotting, old Soviet munitions that had to be cleaned up in, in a clean way. And there were a variety of other mm-hmm. uh, U.S. government services there on the ground at the time. So that was really interesting. But you got a, a chance to do some really interesting things and see things that you would have never seen before. You know, we got to see our uh, strategic stockpile and over in Europe. And, um, you know, you get to give your opinion on things that were pretty interesting. So, so it sounds like this entire time in your military career, you spent this doing non-medical things for the most part. Um, you weren't there as a PA, but you brought your PA lens, if you will. Yeah, so I did both. I, I was a PA, you know, so I did PA stuff. And when I was deployed, I got, okay. to, pick, I got to pick where I went. So most of the time, it was either um, acute care, which is what you would now call in the civilian world, a uh, fast track um, uh, ER, or sure. I got to do um, family medicine for for people who were um, on temporary duty someplace else. And um, we I would fill in for them in different places. So I did clinical work and I loved that. That was a lot of fun. And but I also did a lot of administrative work. I uh, coordinated the uh, disaster drills. I coordinated mock codes. I was a total quality management coordinator for the base. I did uh, for a period of time, I did a lot of their biological chemical training for a lot of people. I was the sent to the um, so I, you know, went to all the places where you get trained for these things and uh, to some really interesting places. 
And then I got during the anthrax vaccine and smallpox vaccine, when there was a lot of, especially in the Air Force, there was a lot of uh, resistance to vaccinations because of some articles in the Atlantic and some other places. So I got sent to the um, the uh, vac and the Pentagon had this vaccine spokesperson training. And we would go uh, and get media training, but we also learned everything there was to learn about cold chain supplies and about side effects of the me- of the um, you know of the vaccines. These were not new vaccines, as you know. These are the same dry vax that they used when I was a kid. You know, I had to get revaccinated. And I said, yeah. to, I said to my mom, I called her. I said, Do you know when I was uh, got my smallpox vaccine? And it was 1966. So it was, um, and it turned out to be. Oh wow that same vaccine, right? And anthrax, this was an old vaccine used for veterinarians. So it wasn't, you could question their effectiveness uh, because you could never really test other than animals, whether they could prevent disease. You could really question that and you could question why you needed five anthrax shots, but but you couldn't, but the safety, you knew what the side effects were. Anthrax vaccine was pretty safe and Drivax had a lot of side effects, but they were well known since the fifties, right? So um, the uh, became a uh, that and eventually I became the uh, administrator for the medical department. I worked for a um, a urologist who was uh, the head of what they call professional services, which was essentially the physicians and the um, dentists and the optometrists and the nurse practitioners and the PAs. And so um, I became um, his administrator. So. okay, okay, And you retired what year? I retired in 19, I want to say, oh, 2009. I want to say 2009. 2009. Yeah. So you deployed in the first Gulf War to Riyadh? I was not. I was deployed in Desert Shield, which is before there was fighting. And then I wound up, we wound up backfilling eventually in, um, in South Carolina at an Air Force base where everyone deployed to set up a hospital and actually there were um, no there was very few providers seeing patients and yet it's a community where it's so beautiful that there was a lot of retirees and so the everything was backing up and so then they shipped us off in a C130 there and said, we just need you to backfill for a while until we can figure out a solution for it and so I was in Desert Shield, but Desert Shield was not Desert Storm. There was no fighting at the time. So, yeah. Well, yeah. And Desert Storm was so fast. Yes. <laughs> there, there wasn't a whole lot of time to be in Desert Storm. Yeah. It's very different from the Iraq-Afghanistan era, of course. Exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah. By the time the second Gulf Wars happened, I was already, you know, sort of um, phased out um, a little bit. Sure, and sure. So I did volunteer to go over at the beginning, and uh, my uh, turn never came up. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for your service, Matt. I appreciate that. Um, what what led you into the academic side of things? Yeah, so that was another thing that I wish I say I totally had planned, but I did not. So I was, you know, a healthcare administrator at the time. I was still seeing patients, maybe uh, two or three half days a week, but I was mostly an administrator. And at that time, what was happening at the institution and what was happening in healthcare and the tremendous amount of time I spent on um, Medicare billing issues, it was 
less fun. And I felt that my years of as an adjunct professor at the time at Hahnemann, and then eventually I was an adjunct professor at uh, a lot of different places. I, I PCOM was one of them, Arcadia, uh, Salus Optometry School, Salus Audiology School, the nursing school at University of Pennsylvania. So I, I realized I loved the teaching part more than I liked the administrative part in the healthcare world. And there was an opportunity for a founding program director at the second PA program to open up in Philadelphia. And the first one, which was Hahnemann, was very supportive. In fact, the consultant was from Hahnemann. And so they let me know about it. It existed. I applied for it. I got the job and was there. I was teaching courses, but there was no healthcare programs. I was teaching an introduction toward the courses and different courses that I could teach like one or two courses. But basically, I was there to start the first healthcare programs at uh, what was at the time called Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science. This was a long, long time ago. Wow. Yeah. And um, I, uh, it was best known for materials engineering and business um, and architecture and not really well known for healthcare because they didn't do it. And so, you know, they said, well, you know, I, I, there wasn't much of an infrastructure for it, but there was a big appetite to do it. And there was money behind it and a lot of administrative support. So I was able to um, start the program. Things were different then. There was um, a thing called letter of review. There was no provisional accreditation at the time. And uh-huh. we uh, we started the PA program. I guess it's going on. Uh, it's probably, it's still running. It's 30 years old. And we started that and we started a second campus in New Jersey and started a master's degree. And eventually um, they changed their name to Philadelphia University. And eventually uh, we merged with Thomas Jefferson University, which was a um, we had about thirty eight hundred students when we merged and we were twenty five percent healthcare programs. And then we merged with the uh, a um, and we were 130 year old place and we merged with a 190 year old place that started as a medical school and then was a large hospital system. But it was mostly a medical school, nursing, pharmacy and um you know, it was all healthcare, but it was really close geographically, and it was the perfect marriage of two places. It was one of the first mergers, and according to the Chronicle of Higher Ed, it was one of the first successful mergers. And I would probably sure. say it was really interesting to be a part of because I had moved from professor program director to interim dean, to school dean, to college executive dean. And when we merged, I was the provost at at Philadelphia University. So, you know, I was one of the five people initially involved in the merger. And the merger was fascinating because, you know, even if you have 8,400 students, you're still tiny compared to a 35,000 employee healthcare system that's been through seven mergers. I mean, they have 18 hospitals and more outpatient sites than you can count um, in very, a lot of them in very specific areas um, because they put all these health systems together, but we also have a health insurance company. And then we have this uh, a very large GME program with probably close to now 1,800 residents and fellows and um, across the system. Wow. And a, um, a fairly large uh, 
research portfolio, both clinical and basic science research portfolio. So it's a complicated place, and but it was fun to work in. And I had worked for some of the clinical practices years ago. And so I knew a lot of the people. So it was um, it was a very interesting, um, that was an interesting uh, part of my life, but I always continued to do some teaching. So I eventually had to stop the, I had to stop clinically practicing um, at a period of time when it became really complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I, get, I mean, I have to imagine, first of all, what a, what a great get for somebody that's thinking about starting a whole healthcare professional portfolio to bring in somebody that's not only PA, but somebody who also has been in leadership roles, both in the military, but also in the civilian sector at the nursing home facility that you originally with and so forth and so on. You you had a different set of lenses to look at the situation from with an administrative eye. And I have to believe that was a big part of their success early on. I mean, I think it, it was. I mean, um, yeah, I often say to people as a leader, you know, and um, I said, you know, one of the things I can at least say I have, I don't have the answers to all issues because things come up. It's really complex now and more complex mm -hmm. every day. But there is a side of empathy. I mean, I was a student five times in my life, so I, I know what that is. I know what it is to borrow money and and uh, not have any money and go to school and have loans. And I was also a, um, a parent of college students paying for those loans, and I can empathize with them. I was a preceptor of students for years. So I can empathize with our preceptors. I was a guest lecturer. I was an adjunct professor. I was a full-time professor, a director, a dean, and a provost. So, and I was in hospital administration. So I understood that side. And I was also in, you know, the nursing home administration part and hospital administration. And so it was, they're really, uh, I can empathize with a lot of people every day that I dealt with. I could speak their language. I had done so many things yeah. and worked in research administration. I had done so many things that I wasn't the master of any one of those things, but I was um I, I had done them enough that I understood them. I understood the lexicon and I most certainly understood what those pain points were for them. Uh so sure. when you're working that many years um, with physicians and nurses and rehabilitation therapists and PAs and nurse practitioners, you know the sensitive issues. And, you know, I took opportunities with um, the PAEA, which was uh, called APAP before that, the Educational Association, Physician Assistant Education Association, different roles um, with the AAPA, the American Academy of Physician Assistants, and then um, different roles with the um, ARCPA um, that accredits PA programs and with um, middle states, our regional accreditor that uh, accredits uh, lots of different universities. So some of the uh, little details and uh, sensitive areas and pain points I understood going in and it helped. I think the most helpful part of our merger was, and I would love to say it was our flawless um, execution, and it was pretty good. We paid attention to culture early, but I would say the fact that mm -hmm. we didn't have too much in common, it's what everybody said was crazy, turned out not to be crazy. 
In other words, at a, what was maybe 200 academic programs, we only overlapped in three. That was it. Um, wow. It like, wow. So there wasn't massive layoffs and it wasn't done for financial. That reasons. helps. It definitely helped that, less afraid. I was just going to say, Matt, I have to believe that diversity that of the portfolios of both institutions probably really enriched the whole process of the merger to make it a much stronger uh, outcome. That's that's it. I think we called this early wins and the merger thesis. So the Philadelphia University side that I came from had already been developing medical devices since yeah, I, I, since the 1950s, you know, the first Gore-Tex graft that went into somebody's leg was developed there in textiles. It was developed hmm. in engineering. The collar that I wore when I hurt my neck was designed there. Um, so it's a material, right? <laughs> and um, yeah, That's really uh, cool. And, you know, we had our occupational therapy department, along with the industrial design department, product design, had developed 250 products for rehabilitation. And so it was, um, we got to, uh, and our architects and interior designers have been designing hospital spaces and other things for years. You know, it isn't like we abandon the other parts, like a person come to one of our very popular fashion and well-ranked fashion programs, and they wanted to be a fashion designer, and they wanted to, you know, work for um, Tommy Hilfiger, and they wanted to work for Vera Wang. We weren't saying you couldn't do this. We we never said to anybody you had to um, design hospital gowns, right? But there were synergies that were unbelievably cool right. that no one had thought of. You know, we do a writing group with trauma surgeons. This is our this is our writing professors and people who see terrible trauma every day, and we give out awards for that. So there's things that um, that are were very cool, and we also didn't have to worry about whose um, mascot we were going to use, because the Jefferson side of it, they were a medical school, nursing school. They did not have any sports teams, right? And so the mascot, mm -hmm. the basketball team, all those other things, we have a Hall of Fame um, in Springfield, Massachusetts, basketball coach. And so all, you know, there was no fighting over what would that be. And uh, we, and so when we merged into Thomas Jefferson University, it went, I can't say it was totally, everything was smooth, but it went smoother than I would have anticipated. So you were the provost on the Philadelphia side when this merger was being discussed. So you were in on those conversations yes. early on. I, I imagine if you were just a program director, not that that's just a, but, but you know, provost is uh, basically the COO of an institution. So you had the chance to have an impact on that and, and give insight into the importance of the culture of Philadelphia. But it sounds like also knew that your role as provost might be in jeopardy when you moved over. Is that correct? So everything's an unknown. And originally at the table, because we didn't know we were going to date, but we didn't know what would due diligence show and whether we would get married. Right. And so... At the table was the, the two presidents, the two chief academic officers, provosts, the two CFOs, and the two chief operating officers. That was the whole table, right? Because 
after that, if we weren't going to get serious, we weren't going to get it out of this group, right? And so you never really know what your role is right. going to be. I know that the provost at uh, uh, Jefferson, wonderful guy named Mark Tikachinsky, he had many jobs. He was provost, but he was also the dean of the medical school. He also um, had just given up the role because of too many things. He was the president of the medical staff. That's like 4,000 physicians, right? He was also- Yeah, that's a big job. Of the faculty practice. So he was also um, a researcher with grants and his own biotech company. Um, And he was also an executive vice president for the enterprise that sits above the hospitals and the university. So he- um, Wow. You know, found a great position for me as um, as uh, what he called senior vice provost for academic affairs, which is an SVP AA sort of role um, that ran the academic side, um, and and that was uh, you know it was all things I was used to doing, but uh, not at the scale that we were at at the time. So. I, you know, there's always anxiety when a new leader comes in. So I've lived through many, uh, probably six or seven presidents, eight provosts. I worked under 10 deans. And the Harvard Business Review would say that when a new leader comes in, within one year, half the people on their leadership team underneath them would be gone and replaced with people that they felt more comfortable with, right? And so it's sort of like my being a PA really well prepared me because when I walk into a clinical place, whether it was in the military or in the hospital or in the nursing home or in the um, emergency department, wherever I walked into a clinical facility, I was always showing my, proving myself. And like, I know PAs have complained to me about years. Well, I feel like a resident all my life. I always have to prove myself. My attending comes in. They don't have to prove themselves. You know, the most exciting part about what I do is every day I walk in and I say, I have to show my value. What am I going to do? Because it's not the same as yesterday and things are going to change. And you just have to say, that's part of it. Things are going to change. Show your value every day, whether you're a clinical PA in family practice, which I was, or you're the senior vice provost or you're the provost. You have to come in and you have to show your value to the company every day. You have to always think of how am I providing value to this practice or how am I providing value to the um, institution that I'm working for? And it's I think that's been, for me, one of the, um, the, the secrets to the fact that I was not replaced with many different leadership changes. And in fact, I was you know continually promoted my jobs no matter where I was approximately every you know five years or so so i think you really do have to just come in and and uh and i think that was uh was very helpful during the merger i think you were alluding to this earlier you know having a willingness to go with the flow on change and it sounds like that has been your key to success that you've always been flexible when change is coming yeah, absolutely um you know i've gotten more involved in the literature of change management and mergers and acquisitions and uh but change is a constant you know it is you know it's the only thing 
that you can actually know is going to happen is that things will be different. Certainly, higher ed has changed. Healthcare has drastically changed for a variety of reasons. I mean, would you have imagined that we would be telling the the people we're preparing as PAs that we would be telling them that they might work in a retail pharmacy or that they might be doing telemedicine or they might be working someday for Amazon. It's a, it's a very dynamic marketplace that uh, will, you know, that you really have to adapt to because if you don't adapt, the market will replace you with a cheaper, faster, better model of you. And um, so, you know, you really do have to understand and you have to make a decision early. Do I think this is worth staying with? Do I have a fit here or do I not? And if you don't, um, there's plenty of job opportunities. And if you think you do, then you have to adapt to um, your new boss and you have to adapt to the way the place, the vision that the place has to change. Yeah, absolutely. As a provost or as a dean or as a leader in PA education, you you are constantly looking at the horizon. So as you see the changes that are happening in our PA profession that you alluded to and, and some of the things like the doctorate in PA education or uh, the optimal team practice movement, what, what excites you about the future of the PA profession and, and what things are you kind of keeping an eye on for your institution? So I think that um, the things that continually are in um, flux are the settings uh, that we'll be working in as healthcare providers, the actual mix of providers um, and the skill shifting of those providers and what they will do, um, not just what we'll do compared to in contrast with what doctors and nurses do, but also in contrast to what artificial intelligence will do. And and a variety of other technologies, continually looking at the uh, the landscape of concierge medicine, of hospital at home medicine, and where do we fit into that, at retail medicine, and where do we fit into that, at telemedicine, and where do we fit into that. And then specific to PA, as you know, there's been two fairly exciting things. One of them has been the uh, the name change, uh, the move toward from physician assistant to physician associate, which has been an, a discussion since I since the 70s. And then the optimal team practice. And even though I see both of those things moving forward, those things are less are driven nationally but they're implemented at a state level. So just like the prescriptive practices were in the 80s. So if people, uh, you know, I think we need to be patient, but we also need to be flexible in that we will be working in the different settings that we didn't imagine. Um, as a lot of PAs will say, go into orthopedic surgery and they'll be doing the rounds. Well, almost most of our hip replacements, total hip replacements are done outpatient now. People go home the same day. People are getting, you know, cabbage, coronary bypass graft surgery, and they're going home on day two, day three. It's just very different. And so telehealth, remote patient monitoring, hospital at home, these things are all going to become the reality. The other thing that um, PAs need to be heavily involved in is population health and quality and safety. And um, we are 
going to move away. We keep saying this, but it's slow, but we're moving away from fee-for-service to more of a outcomes-based, quality-based metrics driving the reimbursement. And I think um, that's a change. The thing I tell all young PAs and is and PA students is as you look at the future and the longevity of your career, know that you can go almost anywhere. So, you know, I've done administration in healthcare and in hospitals, I've done clinical, I've done research, you know, so it's been exciting. Uh, and you can move places, but you have to, number one, be flexible. And number two, know that you're going to have to get another skill set. And the more you can get, the more invaluable you will be. You will be irreplaceable. If you are the only PA in the practice in Philadelphia that speaks Spanish fluently, you're going to be more valuable than the other people in the practice. If you're the only one that understands medical informatics and the electronic health record, you're invaluable. If you're the only one that can do smoking sensation and weight loss counseling, you're going to be invaluable. If you're the one that understands population health, you're under, if you understand telemedicine, if you uh, you know get the provider training for cannabis, for medical cannabis, there are certain things where you can make yourself totally um, irreplaceable almost in your practice, but it's not by doing the traditional things that we all learn to do and are great at, right? So, you know, master prescribing medicines, master doing procedures, master doing assisting in operations, and all of that has changed. You know, we used to uh, be holding uh, retractors, but, you know, it's different now that everything's done laparoscopically and things are done with robotics, Da Vinci, you know, everything is different. Uh, I was the best suturer. Well, if you're using mostly staples and derma glue, um, you, you know what I mean? Some of this stuff, you know, things are just going to change and you have to be really flexible with that and also get a bunch of additional skills. My boss calls this medicine plus. He believes that physicians will be partially taken over by PAs, nurse practitioners, and artificial intelligence. So he says, in our medical school, the physicians choose another skill they're going to learn. And so it's a pretty, um, it is the way of the future. You have to be pretty um, agile. I'm now learning, taking formal courses in the metaverse. I have no idea what that's going to mean for 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 the healthcare community and PAs in specific, but I know it's probably not going away. So I, if it's not probably not going away, it's probably something I should know about. That's just, you know, what I see in the future, but I do see that the settings will really change. And I think the way we're reimbursed to really change, and it'll be much more population, much more keeping people out of the hospital and much more emphasis on quality and safety. And things will continue to go to the lowest. The economics say that things will go to the lowest cost provider. And at one time, that was us. That is no longer us. And so I think that the, the, they will continue to, um, you have to continue to show your value. Well, Matt, thank you so much. This has been really insightful, and I, I appreciate your time. Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Matt Dean Baker, for sharing his insights and his time with us. What an incredible human being. And he offered such great wisdom about a work ethic and maintaining flexibility. 
tune in next week as Steph and I conduct our season three reflection episode. And we look back at the guests that we've had an opportunity to learn from this last season. And we'll look ahead at what is to come. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you're walking in life. And thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and perspectives expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the University of Arizona.